Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I think it's that religion actually is an evolutionary part of our expanding consciousness. People like Dawkins would talk about the possibility of it being at the genetic level, but in terms of the evolutionary process, religion is such a waste of resources from a, a purely genetic level. So to me, it suggests that the mind is playing a great part in all this. Is religion a figment of the human imagination? And can we be good without God? And how have books by writers such as Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris challenged the traditional narrative of creation. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to meet with two terrific writers, men of considerable opinion, intellect and humour. Screenwriter, producer and poet Nick Harding discusses the enlightened road to atheism, as expertly argued in his latest book, How to Be a Good Atheist and writer and academic Dr Nick Bentley assesses the impact of one of Britain's most prolific and controversial writers, Martin Amos. This is a show about truth and evidence, evolution and belief, political correctness, free thinkers and some not-so-pleasant characters. But first, the writer the British press love to hate, Martin Amos. Fiction is uncontrollable. You may feel you control it, but you don't. The words of British novelist Martin Amos from his award-winning memoir, Experience. Without doubt, Martin Amos is one of Britain's most important and distinctive writing talents. Born in 1949, Amos's experimental approach to the novel form, not to mention his sardonic wit, have guaranteed him a place in the canon of contemporary British literature. And I think it's fair to say that Martin Amos's morally ugly world and comic force both enrages and entertains in equal measure. Martin Amos's books include Time's Arrow, The Information, Money, London Fields, Lionel Asbo, The Pregnant Widow and The Rachel Papers, which launched Martin's writing career in 1973. Dr Nick Bentley is a senior lecturer in 20th and 21st century literature at Keele University. Nick's books include Contemporary British Fiction, Radical Fictions, The English Novel in the 1950s and British Fiction of the 1990s. Well, Nick has just recently published a wonderfully entertaining and informative biography on British writer Martin Amis. Over the weekend, I got a chance to talk to Nick. I asked Nick... Why do readers get so worked up and personally offended by Martin Amos's writing? Well, I think it's a number of reasons, really. I mean, mainly it's some of the subject matter. Some of the books are very controversial. Or the, the topics that they cover are very controversial. He's written books about the about the Holocaust. He's written books about the class system in in, in Britain, about about gender and about sexuality. So there are there are topics that are inevitably going to provoke certain responses in in writers. But I think maybe it's also something to do with you know his style of writing which is very uh, erudite, often seem to be overly clever, perhaps, and that can put people off. It can be a, a sort of an acquired taste reading some of Amos's fiction. Yeah, he's certainly a very controversial writer, and I think you describe his literary landscape in some ways as a very morally ugly world. He stretches the reader, he puts it out there, but 
Isn't that what good literature should do? Absolutely, yes. I mean, I think, I think one of his aims is to throw those questions back to the reader. You know, he presents characters that are certainly not likeable and certainly not characters that you'd, you'd often want to empathise with, but they are characters that raise particular issues about the world in which we all live. And, and in that sense, it does provoke and get you thinking about the particular situations, whether that be the political situations or, or general cultural situations that are around in the world at the moment. And, and I think that's, you know, the power of him as a writer in many ways. I suppose you could look at it that all the overt sexuality, the pornography, the jibes at class or whether it's the Holocaust or celebrity culture, all of that really is a little unpleasant or uncomfortable for the goody-goody reader. Well, certainly. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't shy away from controversial issues. And of course, in a way, he's part of the, the, the culture that he's describing has all those things in it. He's often very critical, for example, of uh, the tabloid press in his novels. And of course, the tabloid press thrives on those very things, on you know, a kind of over-sexualized society, perhaps, on critiques of class, whether, whether the, the, that is working-class characters. And so... His novels are, again, challenging us to think about those, those issues. Now, he has said, I don't want to write a sentence that any guy could have written. Do you think he succeeded in that? Do you think that you can really, a Martin Amos book stands out, you know you're reading Martin Amos just by his language alone? I think so. He's very much a stylist. Um, one of his collected books of essays is called The War Against Cliché. And that idea of trying to write a sentence which hasn't been written before or, you know, is very distinctive and is, can be identified as particular to, to Amos. And I think he does achieve that mostly. I suppose one of the ways in which he has been criticised, though, is that, you know, he's been writing for 40 years now and often his later novels are seen as perhaps not as strong, not as, um, he's not as consistent as his earlier novels. So he's almost become a parody of himself in some of the works. Now, one of the things I'd be interested to get your opinion of is his literary approach, I suppose is the best way of putting it, to the Holocaust. Okay. In terms of how he wrote Time's Arrow, how he's got very controversial, highly sensitive, highly emotional topics and how he has maybe experimented in, in some way or in some degree with his approach. I know the backward narrative frustrated some people in Time's Arrow and his latest one, The Zone of Interest, has received a lot of critical reviews. So do you think in some way he has maybe taken a fresh perspective on the Holocaust or made the reader look at it in somewhat different? And do you think that's justified or merited? I think it is. I think I think the problem that Time's Arrow caused, is, as you say, it's written in, in reverse. So it begins with, well, it begins with a character who's emerging from, from death, as it were, has been you know, born into the world very old, and then we work backwards. And of course, we find out that what we're working backwards to is the experiences of this character in the Holocaust, that this character was a doctor in Auschwitz. Now, I think the problem there was that's a very kind of playful postmodern technique to write something backwards. And it, that jars, doesn't it, quite a lot with clearly the very serious subject matter. So I think some of the British critics in particular were highly critical of, of, of that sort of playful style with such a serious subject matter. It should be said, however, that you know, many American critics and many Jewish critics 
praised the novel greatly. It seemed to be something that was particular to the British critical response. But do you not think there, though, Nick, that in some way reviewers and some readers have misinterpreted his satirical intelligence? Because he has taken a very deliberate approach and it's plain to see. Do you think it's justified some people think that he's in some way profited by the Holocaust in how he's interpreted it? That was one of the criticisms, actually, that he, you know, he was he was writing about the Holocaust, you know, just to sell books, because obviously it's a topic that that has great interest. But I think the experimental technique did offer a real sort of fresh treatment of of, of that subject matter and creates a, a, an incredible poignancy in that sort of moving backwards and and, and playing through that narrative in reverse order. So, of course, in that context, you have a situation in which we move from the horror of the Holocaust to a time before, which kind of makes the reader think about the absurdity of, of, of that particular set of events. And that's, you know, that, that's a very powerful way of approaching the topic and, and a kind of fresh and new way of approaching the topic. Can I ask you, what did you make of Lionel Aspo? Because it's particularly nasty on white working class culture. And some people find it very grating that this privileged middle class man could pretend to have an insight. Yes, it, I mean, the novel did certainly get a lot of critical response. The novel's based on a, a real-life character, a guy who was around a few years ago called Michael Carroll, who you may remember won the lottery while he was in prison, won millions of pounds and was nicknamed the Lotto Lout by the British tabloids. And in one sense, the novel is is very controversial and very provocative in its representation of working-class culture. Lots of generalisations in there that are clearly very difficult to take. However, I think... Personally, reading the novel, I think the main target is the press and, and often the tabloid press and its representation of those characters. So in a way, there's, there's a kind of clever twist that's going on in that novel, I think, that we are being encouraged to laugh at this character and, and to mock this character and perhaps even be fearful of this character. But it's also the, the way in which working class characters have been represented in, in the mainstream press, mainly the right wing press in Britain. So there's, there's a lot of shifts going on in that novel that make it not as straightforward as it perhaps it, as it first appears. Yeah, but you do not think, though, that how he represents the characters, they're, they're not very realistic. I think that is one of the other problems with Amos as well, that he's not really working in a social realist genre or form. He often uses these grotesque characters, these exaggerated characters. In, in that sense, I think one of his biggest influences is, is perhaps Dickens. Obviously, these characters are in a world that we recognise, but they are often exaggerated to the point that you begin to, you know, to question their, their accuracy or their authenticity or their realism. But again, as with Lionel Asbo, often those, those images of people that appear in the press, are, of course, are not realistic. They're exaggerated for a particular effect. So I think he's trying to make us reflect on a culture that uses that kind of characterisation. Can we talk about the London trilogy? Because some people would think that that has been his best so far, his best books so far. So the information, the money and London feels. Yes, those are, especially Money and London Fields, I think, are, are, the, are the two novels that most critics celebrate and think of it as his best work. Money especially, which you can't call it his breakthrough novel because he was well known before that, but it was certainly the novel that seemed to capture a particular moment in the 1980s. Money has a character called John Self who seemed to represent specifically that kind of 1980s individualistic, there's no 
no such thing as society kind of, uh, of politics. And the novel is told through the first-person perspective of self, of this character, John Self. And so he's quite a, you know, again, a, a provocative, nasty character, but he's reflective of the kind of society that those politics are seen to be producing. And there's a tremendous twist in that book, isn't there? Well, there is, yes. I mean, there are twists in lots of uh, Amos's novel, but in Money, uh, you get the introduction of another character who is called Martin Amos. So, you know, some critics didn't, didn't like that, of introducing a character who's effectively supposed to be the novelist. And then the novel turns around the sort of relationship between those two characters. London Fields, the second uh, novel in the trilogy, also has a twist. London Fields is based on the idea that an American novelist actually has come to Britain has found this story. He's found these three characters that he meets in a pub and, and, and is able to weave this story around them. And, and of course, that's a murder story. But again, there's a twist at the end of that novel as well. I won't say what the twist is for those people who perhaps haven't read those novels yet. But certainly there are twists and shifts in what you expect in terms of the narrative. London Fields certainly presented women in a not so pleasant light. Do you think it's fair to say that he's some of his female characters, well he hasn't been very gracious? Absolutely. This is one of the key problems I think with, with, with Amos's writing. Famously for London Fields when it was longlisted for the Booker Prize there were two of the judges who threatened to resign if, if it was included in the shortlist. And I think that the key to that novel in particular is this character called Nicola Six who's presented as the stereotypical femme fatale, is often described in highly sexualized language. But again, I think there is something interesting going on with the way in which Amos is writing there. In one sense, London Fields and and, and some of his other novels are parodies of particular kinds of fiction. The kind of fiction involved in that novel is is that kind of hard-boiled American detective story, you know, by writers like Dashiell Hammett and and Raymond Chandler. And of course, in those novels, you often get these highly sexualized, uh, femme fatale characters. So again, it's that problem of whether Amos is writing realistic representations of people and of women in this in this context, or whether he's he's effectively parodying the way in which women have been represented in other texts previously, and in that sense trying to make us question those representations rather than simply supporting them or, or making us um, you know, want to agree with them. Now, you start your critique on Martin Amos by you taking a quote from his memoir, Experience, where uh, Martin Amos writes, the ideal reader regards the writer's life as just an interesting extra. That made me laugh so much because, you know what, when you look at Martin Amos's life, it's as crazy as <laughs> some of his storylines, isn't it? Certainly Absolutely. his relationships. First of all, his relationship with his father, the writer Kingsley Amos, his uh, marital relationships, his mystery daughter. It's crazy, isn't it? Some of the setups. It's like one of his own novels, isn't it? Um, and then strangely enough, experience does read like a novel, uh, although, of course, it is, you know, it's his, his autobiography. I suppose his relationship with his father, which is one of the the main themes in uh, the autobiography experience, he describes himself perhaps as one of the only, or one of the few at least, writers who have a very famous 
father who was also a writer. So in that sense, you know, it's, it's almost as if keeping on the family business by going into writing. But in that sense, he had to try and position himself in relation to his father's legacy. It may, you know, some people have criticised him for having it easy in that sense. You know, your name is all, or your surname at least, is already well known. It, that makes it easier to get published. But he, I think, sees it as perhaps a bit of a burden as well because you have to try and distance yourself from from writers of the past, as all writers do. But, you know, when that writer is your own father, it becomes even more crucial. And Nick, whatever you think about his personality or his private life and whatever cultural assumptions you want to throw at it, he certainly challenges the reader. And you argue that he challenges the reader directly, head on. That has to be commended, doesn't it? To have that bravery, to have the balls, basically. I think so, yeah. I mean, as I said earlier, I think think what he's trying to do is to describe a society in, in you know or a particular contemporary moment in which of course these characters are placed but also the reader is placed and the reader is not necessarily someone who sits back and, and has this entertainment given to them but is provoked really to get involved and to think about the very society in which, in which they live and, and operate and perhaps the fact as readers we are implicated in some of the problems with in society that the novels are trying to describe. Do you think in some way that because he was so successful so young, his, as he said, his father is Kingsley Amos, the, the famous writer, and that his first novel, The Rachel Papers, was an instant success, won loads of awards, that the general, not just reading public, but the, the critical public are somewhat envious of him or jealous of him or begrudges success, that, you know, that he's gotten a hard time maybe. To a certain extent, I think that I think that's true. There is um, a, a lot of uh, actually, you know, quite a lot of jealousy in the publishing world. He, he doesn't help matters, though. I don't think, because uh, I mean, I mean, the, the the various actions that he's and the various comments he's made about other writers, for example, you know, feeds into that. Also, famously as well, he changed his his editor mid part of his career. And he was seen as, as sort of chasing the chasing the books, perhaps a little bit in that in that situation. His previous editor was Pat Kavanagh, who was married to uh, Julian Barnes, who was initially a good friend with Martin Amis, but they you know they had a falling out because of that. So you know, alongside all the fiction, there is this sense in which it's a, a sort of literary world in which Amis moves and is a provocative figure in his real life as well. And his pompous, divisive outbursts don't help things at all. Sure, they don't. No, and especially most controversially after the uh, the nine eleven attacks, uh, where he well he, he published a book called The Second Plane, which was a collection of essays for in the in the broadsheets and some short stories about nine eleven and. His comments, especially about Islam, were certainly perhaps not as measured as they as they should have been, and, and, and actually can be accused of Islamophobia. It was a kind of knee-jerk reaction, I think, to the horror of that moment, which led him to perhaps being identified as supporting the you know the Bush and the Blair response to 9/11 with the attacks on Iraq. So he, oddly enough, as a writer who had often been associated with the left, was then perhaps seen as holding up this kind of neoconservative response at that moment. I'd say, Nick, that really killed him afterwards because he has tremendous psychological insight in his writing. So I'd say he was very disappointed in himself. I think maybe he was too quick to write after the event. In fact, he does say in, in, in that book elsewhere, he says that, you know, it might take 10 years or more for, for that particular event 
to fully enter into the consciousness and maybe some writers should should wait that long until they write about it um, i mean the thing about a writer like amos though is is often when particular um international events of, of such magnitude happen it's often the writers that we go to for responses so in a sense they are invited to speak about a certain situations and then often their responses can be you know not as measured as they as they should be and as i said earlier perhaps kind of knee-jerk reactions not as sensitive as perhaps they they should be now you have literally looked at all his books and i have to say your interpretations are very entertaining and you give a great context to his novels and to his writing what would make it to your top five martin amos books what books would make your top five? Oh, right that's a that's a very good question i think i think probably the london trilogy all three of those money london fields and the information but in fact, the information is probably my favourite novel, which is a, a novel about, again, about literary rivalry uh, between a, a very successful novelist who's, who's seen by the main characters as, as writing is not of, the, of high quality and a writer who writes experimental fiction that, that no one wants to read. And it's the, you know, the, the comic juxtaposition of those two writers that, that, that make that a really clever novel. I guess alongside those, I mean, I, I, I like Lionel Asbo, but for reasons that, that the quality of writing is still quite good, I think, despite the provocative subject matter. And your think, bogey list? Personally, I would avoid The Pregnant Widow because, you know, Amos claims to be a feminist writer, which I think if you read that novel, that claim is dead in the water. Also, some of the earlier Dead Babies is a very difficult read, I think. Um, perhaps Success, you can see what he's doing in those early novels, but doesn't quite work out perhaps until he gets to his, his mid-period of Money and, and London Fields. And last question, if you just had to pick one. If there's somebody out there who's heard about Martin Amos all their life, never read any of his books, it's going to tuck into one. What would it be and for what reason? I think I would start with the information. I think it's, for me, it's the funniest novel. I mean, we, we talked about all these serious topics that he covers, but, but at the heart of Amos's writing is that, that he's a comic writer. He has very funny situations, very funny you know, sentences and paragraphs, and I think that comes together very well in the information. You can see there a writer that's, that's at the height of his powers. So, yeah, I think I'd recommend that one as a, as a good starting place. And that was Dr Nick Bentley from Keele University. Martin Amos is published by Northcote House Publishers and retails for in around €12. OK, let's take a bit of a breather. And when we come back, I'll be asking, does religion have a future? But first, let's break to some music.
Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. In his introductions to How to Be a Good Atheist, Nick Harding writes, Despite efforts by theistic apologists to level the accusation that it is just another faith-based position, atheism, by its very nature, cannot be labelled a belief. To call atheism a fate is an oxymoronic statement. It is the absence of belief in deities or the childish idea that there are supernatural forces that control human existence. One cannot possess absence of faith or belief by having faith in atheism. Contrary to what theologians claim, atheism is neither a cult nor a religion. Nick Harding is a British screenwriter, producer, poet and short story writer. Nick has written for film, television and computer games and is the author of numerous books including Urban Legends, Secret Societies and How to Start Your Own Secret Society. Well, Nick's latest publishing venture, How to Be a Good Atheist, is a brief history of free thought offering the reader a lively introduction to famous atheists or, as Nick so eloquently puts it, a who's who in purgatory for knowing there isn't a God. Well, over the weekend, I got a chance to talk with Nick. I asked him, how does being an atheist affect his everyday experiences of life? Well, to a certain extent, I can sort of move through life without really thinking about atheism in terms of how I see the world and how I sort of view the world. It usually manifests itself when you come up against someone who has obviously a differing view. Um, take, for example, my wife. She's Catholic. And I, I got married in a church to sort of add a respect to her religion and her parents, who are of Italian descent. And I was quite happy to do that. And I was actually quite happy to meet her priest. And when he asked what faith I was, I said I had none, that I'd been an atheist all my life. He was quite accepting of that, which I think in many respects is very heartening for me because I can see the world of religion being very anti-atheist at the moment. And I think that the church, both Protestant and Catholic, has come a long way in the last sort of... I think, to be honest, the Protestant church more than the Catholic church has come a long way in accepting... Uh, I think the priest described it as a mixed marriage, I think, because I was marrying a Catholic. Whereas a few hundred years ago, probably even 50 years ago, that would have been completely frowned on. So my atheism essentially is, is quite optimistic, although I might rile against religion. I am essentially an optimistic atheist in that, and I don't wish to sound arrogant, but I think we are gaining ground. I think that atheism is becoming more acceptable in more mainstream society. Take America, for instance, overwhelmingly Christian, although not founded on Christian principles, but actually the second voting group or the next group down are the atheists and the non-religious, which probably numbers around 30 million people in America, which is quite surprising for a country that's desperately in many respects trying to be a theocracy or at least the right wing of uh, Americans. They'd be quite happy to see a theocracy. Well, now, Nick, I think Alistair McGrath, the theologian, um, he has come out saying that atheism is disappearing and he'd take a completely different view to you. I disagree strongly with that indeed. I think atheism is actually manifesting itself more now. And I, I think probably what you'd find, particularly in this country, if you do a census, you'd find that most people would probably put Christian down on their census form who actually never, ever go to church because it's almost like a social sort of... The social, social milieu of, of Britain is to be a Christian country, even though church attendance is dropping considerably. And it's not to say that people don't value religion particularly. I think it's the fact that 
because the progress of science, the progress of understanding, the progress of technology, the, the progress of, say, for example, the Internet, where people can openly discuss atheism online and discuss ideas and concepts, whereas before that was never available. So in, to, to a certain extent, atheists had almost to keep quiet, you know, really up until generally quite recently that um, you had to be maybe kept quiet is the wrong word. People felt isolated, but now there's a blossoming, a burgeoning sort of motivation to sort of express their atheism. I mean, online, I sort of, through things like Facebook and Atheist Alliance International, I can talk to atheists around the world, predominantly in America, when I find that very, very optimistic that more Americans now are, are actually saying, actually, we're not religious at all. And I said that you know, 30 million Americans, and that figure is growing, uh, who are atheistic, and to a certain extent in Europe as well, more and more, you know, particularly in the Scandinavian countries, although they'll claim to be Christian or Lutheran or this kind of thing, atheism is allowed to blossom more, it's expressed more, it's taught more, and people can openly express their atheism without fear of uh, retribution. Obviously, sort of in the, the Middle East, there's, there's a different tenure on the whole thing. It's, it's more dangerous. You know, in fact, in more recent years, we've seen more and more atheists being murdered and you know, put to the sword, you know, quite literally, which I find shocking. And I think the root of all this, and I actually probably know the root of all this, is the fact that we had the Enlightenment in the West. And this is not to get sort of, how can I say, arrogant as the West over the East or anything like that. I'm just saying as part of the natural social progress we have the Enlightenment. And you know, I can guarantee that a Christian of two, three hundred years ago would not recognize a Christian today. You know, in fact, Christians today are far more tolerant in many respects, far more accepting. A lot of the more extremist Christian ideas of, of hell have been sort of, yes, well, we don't believe in hell anymore. And you know, the Catholic Church has even rid itself of the concept of limbo. It struck me, Nick, when I was going through the book, that in some way the different atheists that you're profiling and the debates they're engaging in on, what all of them have looked at is that religion is a sort of byproduct of the mind. And maybe I've got this wrong, but... What they're all addressing is the fact that belief in God is in some way a response to human suffering. What do you make of that? Yeah, I'm from that sort of school of thought that religion is a concept of the expanding consciousness, if you see what I'm saying. You know, for sort of tens of thousands of years, we were wandering the savannas of Africa and our principal aim was survival. I, we had to eat, we had to reproduce, we had to dodge the lions and predators. So our, our mind was focused and concentrated on that. But as soon as we kind of, you know, as we evolved, we gave up our nomadic life, we could settle down, you know, we developed language, we de developed concepts of linguistics and relating to each other. We developed, you know, for example, we, we developed the plough. So from the plough, we, we stayed put. We had to measure fields about, you know, this, that's my little bit of land, that's my bit of land. We developed geometry, mathematics. If you take the idea of, say, the Egyptians on the Nile, they could tell that the, every now and then the, the Nile would flood. And they worked it out slowly that this happened once every 365 or so days. But, of course, then you had a kind of a priestly caste who would keep an eye on all this. And from that, perhaps, developed the concepts of outward-lookingness. Now, what's going on here? You know, why is this happening once a year? Is there some agency behind this? And, of course, the plan brought the idea that we could grow more food. We grow more food. We settle down. There's more time for us to discuss things, debate things. You know, why are we here? What are we doing here? You know, is there a divine plan? So I think that religion actually is an evolutionary part of our expanding consciousness. 
people like Dawkins, would, uh, Richard Dawkins, would talk about the possibility of it being at the genetic level. But in terms of evol- the evolutionary process, religion is such a waste of resources from a, a purely genetic level. So to me, it suggests that the mind is playing a great part in all this. So you're saying in some way that atheism represents a form of progress, is that it? Indeed, and I think what, essentially because if we actually said um, we are, every single human being is an atheist, it's just that I and people like Dawkins and Sam Harris have gone one god further. For example, you know, the Egyptians, probably as Herodotus said, the great uh, historian, that the Egyptians were the most religious people on earth. They worshipped and they prayed every day for three and a half, four thousand years. But who now worships Osiris or Isis? Their religion has gone. You know, they've sort of, religion obviously evolves and things, but as we become more intelligent, I say more intelligent, but as we progress, the realm of the gods becomes more and more ridiculous seeming. You know, that you sort of, we know that illnesses isn't, aren't caused by the gods, as of course, for much of our history, we believed in thousands of gods. You know, the, the human animal was a polytheistic creature who believed more in more than one god. Monotheism has only come about in the last possibly two and a half thousand years at best. And all from the one source, in, i.e. in the Middle East there, sort of, you know, the Israel-Palestine, that kind of area. I, I think Sam Harris would describe what you're saying there as, uh, Nick, intellectual hygiene. Yeah, I think that's very good. It's almost like if you have to imagine that the brain is a computer and the religion is a virus and that you have to sort of rid the brain of that virus. Dawkins, again, talks about the idea of religion being a memeplex, which are ideas that are passed from one person to another. The same way that we, we hum a song or the, we know how to build an arch, these are ideas that kind of transcend and become... Uh, these ideas are, are easily passed between people as memes, they're mimetic, they're memory. But religion is one big sort of memeplex that has evolved or has come about from our, from our minds, essentially. It's a creation of our mind. But I think because every child that comes into the world... I guess I would say an atheist because there's no concept there. But the nature of God and religion is imposed on a child at birth. You know, if, say predominantly if, if, we, if a child is born in the Middle East, their religion is Islamic, so they will see the world through Islamic teachings. If that child is born in, say, Tibet, they're more likely to be a, a, a Buddhist. Or in America, they're more likely to be Christian, overwhelmingly Christian. So I think the child, well, I suppose we could, we could assume uh, we could... Uh, call it a tabula rasa to a certain extent, even though there are inbuilt ideas, you know, the fact that we, we face recognition is inbuilt into the human brain. There may very well be, and I see the point about religion being inbuilt, but there may be some idea that, we, that the child will relate to an, a father figure or a mother figure. You open the book very provocatively and you say that religion is an obstruction to clear thinking, the destruction of rationality. I think a lot of people would disagree with you there on that point, Nick. See how I think you know you sort of Keats had this with with Newton when Newton descri- you know basically described how the rainbow worked. Keats said that well he's destroyed the rainbow, which is complete nonsense. You know what Newton did and what scientists have done ever since is to, um, things are more beautiful, more poetic in science than they are in religion. You, know, you, you look at the deep view uh, field photograph of the galaxies taken by the Hubble telescope. That's far more poetic, far more awe-inspiring, far more numinous than there's someone walking on water, you know, or someone sort of feeding 5,000 people with, a, with you know, the, the idea of a miracle, you know, which is sort of defies physics and defies logic. And I think religion stops people from seeing the world as it really is. It's kind of a lens that drops across our vision, our view of the world. But Nick, we exist in a mystery of sorts, whether you're getting married, falling in love. But we can look at the mysteries 
love without bringing in the concepts of a deity or the deities. You know, obviously the ancients thought it was, you know, Cupid and Eros and all these sort of people that were doing it. And at its heart, you know, love is, you know, I don't want to sort of reduce it to sort of chemicals, but in essence, it is the driving essence behind love is reproduction, which is our sort of primary motivational urge as creatures, as it were, you know. That's not to demean love. I mean, love has inspired songs and poetry and films and, you know, all kinds of fantastic art. But I still think you can, you can have those little mysteries without polluting it with the idea of a deity. I mean, you know, 500 years' time, 1,000 years' time, or even next week, some scientists might say, well, actually, the processes in love are A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and this is how it works, that it's a pheromone-induced chemical reaction and so on and so forth, you know. But we're not, in, we're not sort of summoning God into the process or the gods into the process when we talk about love. You say, and I quote you, Buddhism's appearance as being a good religion, you say that this is nothing more than social and moral indifference. Can you explain that to me and maybe how that equates with past lives? Now, I have to say, I have to be honest here and say um, I did experiment with Buddhism back in the 80s. And I I think in in many respects, it's reasonable. I have to say, not the majority of it, I have to be honest, because, you know, concepts like samsara and nirvana, I find quite ludicrous, really. The idea of reincarnation, I find kind of hierarchical, you know, the fact that we put ourselves above other beings when we're, we're plainly not. We are part of nature. We are, you know, we are basically animals. We are apes. We share our 99% of our DNA with chimpanzees and bonobos. We're not separate from nature. And I think that even with Buddhism, it puts us on a pedestal to a certain extent. But then bring people like Sam Harris. And now Sam Harris is very in, much in favor of meditation. And I think in many respects, I can agree with him on that, that you know, meditation may be good for the brain, may be good for the body, and this kind of thing. But I, I object to the idea, and I sort of I've never got on the idea with the idea of a soul, that when you die, the soul is transferred either into a lower being or to a higher being, or the fact that the soul exists at all. Um, I think it's a concept that is irrational and illogical. But what would you say, Nick, to those who say that Buddhism in some way is a philosophy for living well in the world because it provides a sort of honest structure into human experience? Yes, no, I agree. I, I have that sort of concept. And to a certain extent, you know, Buddhism at the moment, it's not the most bellicose and violent religion, shall we say. You know, it's, it's very pacifist in its outlook, and very much like the Jains, who are very, very pacifist and very, you know, basically don't like to hurt anything or anyone. But again, the sort of the, the pure practicing Buddhists, the monks and things, I, I find this as well troubling with Christianity, that there are monks and nuns who go and hide themselves away from the world. When I think, well, actually, you should be out in the world you know, helping people and doing things. I visited Thailand many years ago and the Buddhist monks were sort of wandering around, but you were obliged to give them food. And I noticed there's a lot of poverty around and poor people were actually surrendering their food to the monks because it was considered good for your karma, that you would add to your karma, you would pay off your bad karma debts or whatever, and that next time you could you maybe raise a little bit higher. And I consider that quite immoral in many respects, you know, that these people were near, not starving, but they were poverty-stricken, and monks were almost sort of demanding food from them, and I found that sort of jarred with me, to be perfectly honest, so, you know. It struck me, Nick, as I was reading through the book, that in some way, atheists have got a lot of bad press. Do you feel in some way that you're on the back foot all the time? Well, we are. And, of course, the 
situation is, of course, that um, I'm, 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 to be honest, I'm also a, a humanist and a secularist. And to a certain extent, I don't mind what people believe. Their religion is their business. It's not for me to interfere. It's not for me to sort of lecture them that they're wrong or indeed try and convert them. That's not my point. Too many religions are trying to force themselves on everyone else. And what's happened in recent years, atheists, secularists, uh, humanists, and, and people of no faith, no religion, have basically said, actually, no, we've had enough of your bigotry, your racism, your xenophobia, you know, your hatred of homosexuals and, the, and lesbians, the transgender community. You know, we're fed up of you trying to inflict your position on us, your views of the world on us. If you want to keep those views, they're yours. You keep them out of the way, but don't try and inflict them onto society. Now, Nick, I think you can get a nasty atheist like you can get a nasty Muslim like a nasty Christian. Oh, yeah, yeah. What I'm trying to say is that morality, decency, exists in all of us. And the morality of doing good, of forgiveness, you know, loving people, did not come with religion. It came before religion. Religion has co-opted those. You know, before people, Christians tell me, oh, well, you know, Jesus taught us to forgive and all the rest of it. No, he didn't. These things predate religion. None of us would be here if we, if, we, if we didn't forgive and we didn't forget and we didn't love each other and we didn't care for each other. It's altruism and altruism exists at the genetic level. It's just that religion has a great way of corrupting those things. Now Nick, you have a very interesting chapter on how to be a good atheist and you ask the question, are atheists happy? It's a very interesting question and I suppose can anyone be happy all the time? But whether by venturing into or by engaging in on religious practices that in some way a structured belief system is the route to happiness. It doesn't really stand up, does it? Yeah, it's, that's a, very, it's a very, very good question, this, because um, a lot of the accusations are, how do you atheists get up in the morning? But I think we atheists realise that, you know, we were a long time dead. Before us was the infinity of time. We've got this brief time in the sun. We must love each other, we must do good, we must relish art, culture, society, knowing full well that in our, after 60, 70, 80 years, if we're lucky, we'll be gone again. We'll resort back to, you know, from ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So there is joy in that, there's beauty in that, there's wonder in that. Your brief time in the sun and you must sort of revel in it. Whereas the religions offer you, your life is miserable, but don't worry, when you die, everything will be all right. And it's almost like putting off your happiness to your death or beyond your death. And nobody, not even the most learned theologians, can prove or know for certain that there is any life or eternal life after death. So my approach is enjoy it all now. Have a good time. Like, yes, there'll be ups and downs, there'll be highs and lows, but that's life. That's the nature of reality. But you've just got to be able to kind of deal with that in a realistic and you know, humane way and not sort of fill up your life with false promises and false hopes and f- false ideologies. Do you think Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code changed people's understanding or changed readers' understanding of religion? Because it certainly tells the, the Christian narrative a bit differently. Do you think it's helped the debate in any way, or is that stretching it? Yes, I, I think it did. I, honestly, I, I know the book has been slammed. It's been you know, badly written and all the other sort of things. To me, it doesn't matter. I mean, is a book like James Joyce's Ulysses, which very few people have read, and it's claimed to be the greatest book in literature, or one of the great books in literature, or you have some book like Dan Brown's that's been read by 40, 50 million people that asks questions, poses questions, gets people questioning the dogma of the church. And I think, despite the criticism of Dan Brown's book, it opened up a debate. 
Now, to a certain extent, what he was suggesting was nothing new. A lot of the ideas had been around for maybe 40, 50 years, I think. And in fact, one book was written, I think, in Sweden in the early 80s that was almost a similar plot to Da Vinci Code. And I, I, I don't wish to sort of upset or, you know, sort of start any kind of plagiarism or, you know, sort of legal proceedings. But Dan Brown took ideas that were around and he put them in a, in a particular way. And I think it worked too get people questioning dogmas of the Catholic, or indeed the Christian faith. Now, one of the things that I was really interested to read in your book is that you say that most libraries are very well stocked in books and organised religion. But when it comes to disbelief, you say, and I quote, readers are hard pushed to find a new book on disbelief. Now, lots of librarians would disagree with you on that point. Yeah, I think now that it's getting more... When I wrote the book, it's a few years ago now, the library here in my hometown was, I could find nothing on, on atheism or disbelief. It was, you know, a desert. Bookshops had a bit more. But I think after Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, which obviously my book followed in its footsteps, and they had people like Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, it was a real surge. And I would re- retract that statement now by saying that obviously libraries, obviously, have, you know, there's a lot more non-theistic, atheist, uh, non-religious criticism of religion out there. There are a lot more books. There are a lot more books out there now, which I think is a good thing, and it's very healthy. Richard Dawkins obviously got pilloried for The God Delusion, but it opened up a door, and it, it sparked debate. Very much like The Da Vinci Code, you saw a great reaction in the church against it. You know, when The Da Vinci Code came out, the first thing the, the, the Catholic Church did was get on its high horse and start fighting back, where what it should have done is said, no, it's all nonsense, carry on reading it, will carry on. But it was almost, they protest too much. And I think that's happened now with a lot of the books, that, a lot of the books that are coming out. It sparked debate, and that's the good thing. Last question. Does religion have a future? Ah, yes. I personally say, and unfortunately, I think it does. But I think, take Islam, uh, for example, is, it's, they claim it's the last great revelation from God. And is, the Jews, the Christians, were the forerunners to Islam. And Islam is now the final word on what God has to say. Now, until Islam has a sort of an enlightenment, you know, it'll stagnate. I mean, all these things were codified a thousand years ago, so there's no debate, not allowed to debate. Whereas in Christianity, we've had an enlightenment and there's been debate. The doors have been open to sort of criticism and, and hence Christianity. And I, you know, whatever Alison McGrath might say, I think Christianity is beginning to fall away now. If you look at, say, the Egyptian religions, as I said before, they worship their gods feverishly and it's gone. I'd like to think that religion will die out eventually. It might not be for 100 years, it might not be for 500 years, it might not be for 1,000 years, but I think it will eventually fizzle away and will be seen as the kind of the, you know, if you imagine that humanity is in its cradle, its infancy, that this is what got us through our infancy. Now we have to put away childish things and get on with reality. There's very unlikely to be new religions forming that base themselves on revelation, because all religions base themselves on a kind of revelationary idea that, you know, knowledge has come from, from God. You know, even sort of Scientology, to a certain extent, was revelation from L. Ron Hubbard, and that was created in the 50s. Or in Joseph Smith's case, you know, Mormonism, which started in the late 19th century, that was revelation, where he, the angel Moroni gave him sort of knowledge that there were these gold plates buried under the hills in North America. But I don't think there'll be anything like that now, from this point on, because I think there's too much communication in the world. There's too much disbelief. Atheism is growing. People are getting more sceptical. People are more questioning. Science is improving. God is being pushed further and further. However you define God, of course, which is a great, one of the great problems of religion, is define God. 
and no religion can actually define God. And this is why atheists, to some extent, I mean, like myself, we tend not to like using the word atheist, you know, from the Greek atheist against the gods. As Jonathan Miller, the theatre director, says, he doesn't like this, the word atheist because it, you have to accept the idea of gods to go against. I know that's sort of semantics, but that's basically where we are now. Is atheists are sort of moving on beyond calling ourselves atheists. We're moving on to calling ourselves non-theists, free thinkers, and the rest of it. And we are a growing movement, if that's the if that's the right word we can use. But I I think to a certain extent there's going to be it's going to be a rocky road. I think to be perfectly honest, and I think probably where the majority of friction will come from will be Islam. And that's not to do to diss it at all in any in any shape or form. But I think the problem is that Islam it stuck a thousand years ago and has not had enlightenment. Therefore, it will not change. It's resistant to change, whereas all other religions, to a certain extent, change. The astronomer Carl Sagan was speaking to the Dalai Lama, and he said, if science proved an element of Buddhism proven to be wrong, what would Buddhism do? And the Dalai Lama said, well, Buddhism would have to change. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful way of summing up religion in the next sort of 500 years, that religion will change, it will evolve, it may dissolve, and, and we may see a point in the future where it goes and disappears completely, and we can sort of basically get on with, with, with looking at reality as it should be. And that was writer, producer and poet Nick Harding. How to Be a Good Atheist is published by Old Castle Books and retails for in around 13 euros in hardback. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoy the show. Next week, I have a fascinating book of letters for you from one incredible writer. So lots to look forward to there. Well, all that's left for me